0: Good morning, Grace Point. We are at the end of four years today as we finish the book of James. Um, There's actually some lobbying going on in our church body for me to reteach the book of James. I'm not sure it's because I was confusing the first time or because it's beneficial. Kit... Uh, Vicki's mother is leading that lobbying effort and, um, and I'm actually intrigued by the idea. I think I'm next going to go to the book of Matthew but if you have any opinions on that feel free to uh, pass them along. First of all some housekeeping. Last week <coughs> we had a bit of fashion sport. Um, for those of you online or for those of you here uh, through a perfectly reasonable explanation, I came with two mismatched shoes last week and 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 made the judgment to share that with a few people. And it spread like wildfire, <laughs> such that I came up here and demonstrated that I had two mismatched shoes. And uh, that led to um, a number of you coming up to me afterwards and sharing your stories about family members who had mismatched shoes. I I have three observations about that. First of all, all those stories were about women. (laughs) Secondly, all those stories were about people that were about 120 years old. (laughs) But maybe the capper was, and you may not know this, we have a chief of fashion police here in our body. And if you know who he is, you could come and sit on the front row. And if you did that, you'd sit beside him. Because except for him not feeling well today, Larry McCracken said to me, you know, John, I'm 92 years old and I've never done that. Thank you, Larry. I want you to know that... um, It's an extreme privilege to share in this uh, ministry with you. Uh, My regular prayer to God is thankfulness for the uh, assistance and contribution to this wonderful church body. Certainly the features of it, of which is Steve and Debbie and their ministry of 30 years with us and Larry and his contributions to Steve and others in the body, the leadership here are amazing. You may not know it, but there are men like Bud back there whose wife, in his name, donated this piano years ago. And that whole congregational, it's a privilege to be part of that. And so De- uh, this weekend, nine months after Debbie's diagnosis, Steve and Debbie are at the coast. And uh, we're very pleased for that and trust that they'll enjoy this weekend. And of course, our prayer for her is to continue to lift her up in health and put her right back in that chair so she can praise with us on Sunday. Uh, Actually, about fashions, I often think of also Postman Don, who sat right there, who's now with the Lord. And Don liked to quote Steve as saying, don't worry about dressing up, just show up. And uh, that's also good for us for today. But for Trouble in River City, I intended to play a clip for you this morning, but we're going with a different plan. In 1962, there was a musical called The Music Man. And one of the stories on The Music Man, you can go to YouTube if you want and Google it, is entitled You Got Trouble. Uh, It shows up under Trouble in River City, which is the name of our message for today. And in that clip, that five-minute clip, the dilemma of that community was that a pool hall had come to town. And in a a wonderfully, I think, entertaining fashion, that song walks us through T is for trouble, and it rhymes with P, which is pool. And it goes through all the things that the children are being exposed to. They're buckling their knickerbocker clothes below the knee They have nicotine stain on their fingers, and all the things that 60 years ago that community was concerned about and called trouble in River City. And trouble, of course, is something that is common to every human experience, ours included, mine included. Last summer, we were at the vineyard, and we have a Friday night dinner where people come and reserve a concert time and meal. And there was a lovely old couple there who, with their last name, I interpreted to mean that they were sympathetic to a conservative social media site that I follow. So I went up to them, greeted them, asked them, are you related to this social media site? I thought they said, yeah. Uh, So I said, you know, I love that social media site. It reminds us of how our previous president did so many good things for this country and how our current president is a disaster, and he is destroying this country. And I will say right now, the difference between official and officious, uh, official would be me speaking for the church, I'm not. Officious might be, I might be offending you by this story, hang in there. So anyway, I said to them, current administration is a disaster. And I got kind of a puzzled look from them, so I walked away, came back mid-meal to them. I said, you know, I didn't mean to offend you, uh, (laughs) but um, I interpreted your name to be associated with the social media site. Now, the woman was the spokesperson of this couple, and it's the reason I call this my three-strikes story. She leaned forward and she said, we're Biden people. (laughs) Strike one. Now, what would you do in a situation like that? Common sense says you'd shuffle away. You'd walk away. Not me. No. No. I thought, I'm a lawyer. I can get out of this. So I said, you know, conservative, liberal, vaccinated, non-vaccinated. There are kind of two sides to both those issues, to which she leaned forward and said, everybody needs to be vaccinated. Strike. Two. I walked away, came back at the inn, tried to smooth things out, didn't do much on it. She clearly was not, a f- not impressed by my legal skills in terms of reasoning. Um, so she left, and as, she, as they left, the couple, they went up to the staff as they were checking out, and they said, who is this guy <laughs> that keeps coming up to us and talking to us about politics? We want to complain to the owner. To which my staff said, "Um, that was the owner. (laughs) Strike three. So everybody has our trouble. Actually, that ended better than I deserved. That wonderful little couple came back later on, and there was a resolution through none of my own legal skills. and, uh, And life goes on. But really, what we're talking about today is, in the book of James, life troubles. Troubles in River City, it's not pool halls, it's not social faux paws during a person's dinner, it's something actually much more serious. For example, one report has that currently over 400 and million, 416 million Christians live in what's called lands of persecution today in our world. They're exposed daily to risks of harassment, discrimination, violence, and death. Across Africa, from sub-Saharan Africa to East Africa, there are at least a couple dozen terrorist organizations that have the ambition, from their point of view, to install caliphates in their territory, and as such, in those regions, destroy the Christian church. It takes place in Pakistan, where the terrible drama continues of the many young women and men, excuse me, women and girls kidnapped and forced by, by force to be raped and marry their kidnappers. The current situation in India and Nigeria evidences that as well, real trouble in River City. More recently, the group Open Doors reported that in Nigeria, one Christian is killed every two hours, 365 days a year. That's 13 people a day, 372 people a month, and 5,000 a year. And all of them, of course, are mothers and fathers and spouses and children. And the research is that in Nigeria, more Christians are murdered for their faith today than in any other country. Now, you say, well, John, that's, that's somewhat unique. Is that anything to do with James? Absolutely, it does. You remember that in James, we started four years ago with the Campus Crusade limerick. I used it as a collegian, the four spiritual laws. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's true. Mary remembers that because I believe her son was involved in that thing, that that group. And uh, and it's true, but it's not the whole story, because these Christians in the first century were heading for trouble. Now, as we go into the book of James, we remember that it was written about one year after Christ's death. Christ died in 33 A.D., was risen from the grave, and we see this book surfacing as soon as one year after that. And for 15 years in the Christian church, this was the only scriptures they had. So if you were living in that time, you'd ask the question, is that enough with the traditions and oral Communications from Jesus and his ministry, and, and of course the answer is yes, it is. But as James wrote this book, it's worth remembering that he didn't co-author it alone. For example, in 2 Timothy 3:16, the scriptures tell us that all scriptures are God-breathed and given by God for our purpose, for our benefit, for our peru- reproof, for our correction. So every book of the Bible that we have is co-authored by both men. There may be one book that was written by a woman in the Old Testament. We'll talk about that another time. By men or women and the Holy Spirit. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21 says, Above all, you must understand that prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophets did not come about by the prophet's own interpretation for prophecy never had its origin in the will of men but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as we open the book of James sometimes we make too much of the fact that James is the half-brother of Jesus and in fact he was and in fact he lived and grew up with Jesus and some of the instructions that he had must have come from observing Jesus, but I really think that James, in his later conversion to following his brother as his savior, and the interaction that James had with his risen brother after his resurrection is one that is instructive for where we understand this book of James to be now. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote, for what I received unto you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of of the brothers of the same time, most of whom are still living. Then he appeared to James. Jesus, after his resurrection, sought out, one of his meetings with the man who he grew up with, who wrote our book and for which that book was the only New Testament book for 15 years. So as James considers, along with the authorship of the Holy Spirit, the message that God wanted these Christians right out of the box to have as Christianity 101, it was in the context of trouble. Acts chapter 5 and verse 17 says, then the high priest and all, the, so, and, and all, the, and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So no sooner had this book been written in print than the apostles were beginning to pay for that message with persecution. And not just slight persecution. With the exception of periods of peace in the first 15 years of the church after the death and resurrection of Christ, times of temporary prosperity you'll see that in Acts 9.31, these men were heading to persecution and death. And so as James talks about trouble, and as he in our scriptures leaves us with instructions about how to handle trouble, it was something that they were both willing to and eventually would pay for with their life. Nero in 64 A.D., set fire to Rome and when criticism came to him he blamed the Christians and so between 64 and 68 AD Christians were imprisoned wrongfully they were put to death they were wrapped in the skins of wild beasts and thrown to dogs to be torn apart they were lit up as torches to light the night sky, as they were burned to death, and they were crucified. And it was during this time, 64 to 68 A.D, that Peter and Paul were both martyred for the message that we're hearing today. So rather than just the light-hearted billiards hall or, or my silliness from last summer. James is dealing with real life challenges, life-challenging things that, in fact, were being encountered by this first century church. And we know that because we've already been through the book of James. James starts and ends with the theme of trouble. James, at times in the book, is a pastor, and he's nurturing his, his followers and his listeners by saying, be quick to listen, slow to speak. At times, James is a prophet, and he comes down hard on these Christians for the kind of things that were going on. We know that because in James chapter 1, we are warned that each man is tempted when he is carried away by evil, every evil desire. Which can lead to sin and lead to death. We know that in chapter 1 because James encourages us that this is real religion to visit the widows and orphans in their distress and keep ourselves unstained from the world. We know that in chapter 2 when these Christians were applying favoritism. 70% of the first century church were slaves, they were poor. And the church only met on Sunday night because that's the only time the slaves got off. But there were a few in the church who were wealthy, who were of higher standard. And the first century church at times couldn't be quick enough to move them to the front row and to push the poor slaves toward the back. And James said, that's favoritism. That's a dishonor to our God, and you're not to do it. And in fact, it does not fulfill the royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. Chapter 3 warns us about our tongue and how it can set a forest fire. uh, It can set a forest on fire. It can sink a ship. We can, on the one hand, praise God, our Father. And with the other part of our tongue, we can curse men made in the image of God. And so James, as he moves through this instruction in chapter 4, then targets problems in the church. And he says, who calls fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within? Stop it. Stop your arguments in the church. Stop your disputes. In fact, he says God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. And before we've caught our breath, we're in chapter 5 where he's critical of the wealthy. And he says, you who are wealthy, you who are rich, weep and mourn because of the misery that's coming upon you. And you say, excuse me? Everything we've gotten in rabbinic teaching says that when we have a lot, it's the blessings of God. And it's a mark of the fact that we're in good standing with God. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus confronted the rich young ruler and he said, the rich young ruler said, what must I do to be saved? Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus said, give away all that you have. And though he would kept all the commandments, he was sad when Jesus said that because the text says he was very wealthy. And Jesus had pinpointed that his wealth His money had crowded out God in his life. And the disciples immediately said, well, then who can be saved? Hello? And Jesus said, with men, things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. He can change those price tags of the values of our life. He can turn us from people who are mired in the material and the temporary And rather invest ourselves in the future. And so in that regard, we come to chapter 5 and verse 13. I always ask, I try to remember to ask every week, show me your Bibles, hold them up, please. And I'm going to do, thank you, I'm going to do one more encouragement today because you're not going to get this from anybody else. So you might as well get it from me. Get a study Bible. If, If you've got it on your phone, the Bible, great. I guess that's convenient. But get a hardcover Bible. Get a study Bible. I've been through more education than I am intelligent. I've been through seven years of seminary, four years of Greek, two years of Hebrew. And the New International Study Bible that I carry has study notes in the bottom which are very helpful to me. Get the New International Study Bible. Get the Ryrie Study Bible. Get one study Bible that you can open and work through in a... Physical manner. Okay, that's my pep talk for the day on that, even though you didn't ask for it. Um, but in chapter 5, what we find is in James, we find these Christians in trouble. Now we're reading in verse 13. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. If anyone's happy, let him sing songs of praise. And let me say here, That if you find yourself at a station in life where God is blessing you, financially, in health, with family, in circumstances, don't feel guilty. That's God's blessings for you. Enjoy it. Is any one of you you happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil. Stop for a minute. This is not the elders seeking out the congregation. This is the congregants seeking out the elders. And somebody is sick. And they're suspicious their sickness might be tied to personal sin. So they call for the elders of the church. And this is real life applied today, by the way. This is not Old Testament stuff. This is stuff that should be going on in the church. They call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil. The sequence of that really is that the anointing of oil likely comes before the prayer, but it doesn't matter if it's before or after. The oil signifies the presence of God in that meeting. And the text says, and to pray over him in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make that sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins each to the other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So as James ends this book with the assist of the Holy Spirit, he wants to give postscripts on how the body is to live. And one of the ways we live is if we're in trouble, we pray. If we're being blessed, we're happy. But if we are struggling with something that we think is tied to personal sin, The instruction is, go to your leadership, and you should do that here. Go to the elders and confess your sin to them privately. This is not congregant confession of every and all sins to the body. That's in Matthew 18. That's a whole different story for another day. Um, And they will pray with you, and they will anoint you with oil, and they will trust that God may not only forgive your sins but raise you up. And it says the promise is the righteous, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And then as if that point needs to be made more forcefully, James draws back from the Old Testament. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed in the heavens, gave rain and the earth's produced its crop. So Elijah, who was a man just like us, he wasn't a super saint. He wasn't specially anointed to see and do miracles that you and I are not part of. He was flesh and blood like us. And James said, pray. And pray that God will intervene in your life and in your circumstances in a way that if you've sinned, you're forgiven. If you're sick, you're raised up. And you're restored in a manner both individually before God and in the congregation that brings honor to him. And if we haven't caught that point yet, James finishes his book with an amazing section, beginning in verse 19. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. What is that? What that means is that if you find someone who is struggling in their spiritual life, said here, that you should go to them, pray with them, and pray that God will not only relieve them of the sin in their life, that they'll see the issues that are before them and repent from them, but they'll turn apart from a path that leads to physical destruction. Say, what's that? clear in the scriptures that believers who are Christians, who are sealed by the Holy Spirit for eternity, nevertheless can wander from the faith in a way that brings their physical death. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 11.30? Once a month we have the Lord's table. And the wonderful opportunity to raise the cup and to raise the bread, Paul reminds us confess the sins that are before us because for that reason to not take the table seriously many are sick and some have slept in other words to not take the pattern of the lord's table seriously can lead to physical demise and he goes on to say and covers over a multitude of sins if you're a parent you can apply that with your children And God at times gives you the grace to cover the sins of your children by your intercession for them. So where does that leave us with trouble in River City? Some of you have lost a spouse. You're a widow or a widower. Others of you have bad news health-wise. Some of you have faced financial or economic or employment reversals. Your challenge on a week-to-week and a month-to-month basis is real. You don't know how you're going to react. What does this book say? Drop to your knees. James 1 says, and again, it finishes the way it starts. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And when we started that four years ago, we reminded you that the word for testing in the Greek was the word dakamos. And it was the stamp that was on the bottom of pottery as it was going through the kiln. And as it began to form its shape according to its artisan, it would be taken out of the kiln, and the artist would say, that's what I wanted. He'd flip it over. He'd stamp the word "Dokimos" on it, tested. He'd put it back in the kiln to be finished. That's you and me. You may say, John, life is not fair. It flat out is not fair. And I'm here to say, I agree. You're not going to get fair life. We all raise our children to train them away from the complaint, life is not fair. But James goes on to say: if you find that kind of trouble, if you find yourself in the fiery kiln, what should you do? I love this verse. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. You find yourself in a dilemma. Trouble in your river city that you don't know the answers to? Drop to your knees. And while persevering in things that you know God wants you to do, you pray. And when you pray, God will give you wisdom. And in the Bible, wisdom is the ability to live skillfully. It is the Hebrew word hachma, which means skillful living, he will give you wisdom. He'll give you judgment. He'll give you discernment on how to live. And how do we know that? Because he gives to all without finding fault. You say, well, I don't deserve God's hand in my life like that. Yes, you do. Because you're a feature of his grace. You're a show person to be Ultimately, within the design of God and the reflection of Christ. And he's not holding your failures against you. He will meet you at the level of your prayer. He'll give you the wisdom. And in that wisdom, the promise is it will be given to you. So where do we go with our trouble? In the first century... In 70 AD, Nero's catastrophic punishment of the Christians had did its highlight the Roman amphitheater. They called it the circus games. Nero, pompous ass that he was, would often drive a chariot around in that amphitheater as the Christians are being persecuted. But the amphitheater was known... Gladiators that came out, and they confronted the Christians. You remember the movie The Gladiator, oh, by the way. Uh, if I remember to say it yet, no, I'll, I'll forget. I will do that time. Uh, uh, they, they confronted the Christians and slaughtered them. And the citizens of Rome would be in the amphitheater, cheering with this entertainment. And historians tell us that in 70 AD, a little Christian monk named Telmacus came in to the amphitheater. He saw that, and he was aghast. And he hurried down into the bowels of the amphitheater and out into the arena, out into the middle of the arena. And as loud as his little voice could say, he said, in the name of Christ, Forbear. And the gladiators turned and looked at him, who is this fool that's in the middle of our arena? And Telmechus said it again, in the name of Christ, forbear. And one of the gladiators came over and took his sword and he sliced Telmechus from his chin to his toes and killed him. And then an odd thing happened, historians tell us. A quiet settled over the amphitheater that day. And people began to leave. And that was the last day of Nero's amphitheater circus games. It, at least for a time, stopped the persecutions that the Christians were facing. How do you know how your prayer is going to be used? How do you know what wisdom God's going to give you? Let's finish with the words of Jesus. I love this story. Parables were given to us in the Bible. Not as bedtime stories, not as Aesop's fables, but as stories with a message. And after Jesus taught about the end times and the hard things of the Christians during the end times, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus gave a parable about the persistent widow. And the reason he gave the parable is given in chapter 18, verse 1 of Luke. It was to teach the disciples that they always pray and never give up. There was a judge, an unrighteous judge, who did not fear God, did not fear men. And a widow came to him and said, Give me justice. And he shuttled her side. Now, I'm happy to tell you that in 30 years of my work, I've not been in front of a judge like that, but she was, and she persisted. She came back, and she said, give me justice, and he turned her away again. And finally, in this parable, because, quote, the widow kept bothering him, the judge says, I will see that she gets justice. She won't because she'll eventually wear me out with her coming. Jesus taught this, that we're to pray and never give up. And then he applied it to us, and he applied it to life. When Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you. He will see that they will get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Second chance for you to come to the front row today. The end of that parable. What is the promise that's given? And what is the promise that's conditional? Did you hear it? Do I need to read it again? Will he keep putting things off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The thing that's guaranteed, where it's the craziness of our world, the craziness of our country and our political system, the craziness of our economic circumstances, here's the guarantee. God will do the right thing period he'll shape the nations and the authorities and the individuals all according to his purpose and the final analysis will be not that we look up at a at a carpet and we see the tangled strings of the bottom of that carpet we look at the top side and say god did justice he will you and i pray in order to facilitate that justice and now we're into i won't distract you but we're now into the antinomy of god's sovereignty and human responsibility god's going to do justice and he sovereignly determines that our responsibility our prayer is part of it we'll do that another day but what that's the guarantee at the end of our life at the end of our world god will do right by all his purposes but what's the condition when he comes will he find faith that's the purpose of prayer because see this parable assumes something it assumes that life is not fair (laughs) and it's not this woman was in front of an unrighteous judge and jesus said brace yourself that's what life is going to be but drop to your knees trust that he is going to do justice But his purpose is to enlarge our faith, to open up our spiritual being in a way that trouble that you and I encounter causes us to grow up into him. So, as we pray, rather than challenging God for whatever circumstances in our life, If they are through no fault of our own, we say, Lord, I believe that you have a purpose in what you've put me into, and I'm going to trust you to lead me through it. And if the trouble and circumstances that you're in in life are in part because of your own miscreant behavior, own it. We have something in the law called a lie detector test. It's kind of tricky because it lets those liars say, well, I haven't had any drugs, And they have. But the lie detector test, so to speak, in the scriptures is your conscience. And if, in fact, your trouble is in part because of your foolish behavior in the past, own it. Admit it. Go to the elders if you need to, to confess it. Go to a brother or sister and confess it. Help turn someone away from from the pattern of their ways and let God do his work grow you up. What happens when we're in trouble? James says we do two things. We persevere and we pray. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it was authored not only by your hand, but by the hand of those who went before us. And we pray that in the circumstances of our life, that we will trust that there's no mistakes in your work with us, that our trouble in River City is God-designed. It's for the purpose of growing us up. It's for the purpose of enlarging our faith. May we be ones who are found faithful in that regard, in Jesus' name.